So some elements like uranium have different versions of their atoms and these different versions are called isotopes. So if we look at uranium as the example, uranium has a few different versions, but what's different about these versions? It is their neutron number. So uranium-235 has a different amount of um, neutrons to uranium-238, so they're called isotopes. Now, some of these isotopes are unstable, and unstable means they are radioactive. Now, to become more stable, these radioactive isotopes can give out, the proper word for that is emit, they can emit some radiation to allow them to become more stable. Um, and one of these types of radiation is alpha. The other two is beta and gamma, but we'll come on to these in a different podcast. So uranium, if it's unstable, can fire out some alpha to become itself more stable. And this alpha, we need to know what it is, what the structure of it is, and what its properties are. So let's have a look at that. So alpha is actually, if we drew it, we would drew it as four circles all attached to each other because alpha is made up of two protons and two neutrons. That's all alpha is. So if the exam asks you to describe the structure of alpha, you would say the structure of alpha is two protons and two neutrons. Now, how does that affect its properties? If I said to you, what is the mass of alpha, what would be your answer? If you said four, you would be right. Now, alpha has a mass of four because it's made up of two protons and two neutrons. And remember, the mass of one single proton is one, and the mass of one single neutron is one. So if we have two of those protons and two of those neutrons, we have a mass of four. Now, if I said to you, what is the charge of alpha? Is it positive, negative, neutral? Well, think about what it's made of. If it's made of two protons and two neutrons, what are the charge of those? Well, we know protons are positive. We know neutrons are neutral. So if it's made of two neutral neutrons and two positive protons, overall, it must have a positive charge. Is it one positive? No, it's two positive because it's made of two protons. So the mass of alpha is four and the charge of alpha is two positive. Now, we need to have a little look at how dangerous alpha is to the human body. And we need to know about this word called ionizing. We need to know how ionizing alpha is. Now, ionizing means that if alpha was to come towards a normal atom in your body, how easily would that alpha knock the electrons off that atom to make that atom become an ion and then it can turn cancerous? So how ionizing is alpha? How easily can that alpha knock those electrons off your atoms? Well, if we think about the mass of alpha, a mass of four, two protons, two neutrons, that's quite big. 
Alpha has quite a large mass. So when it was coming towards your atom in your body, it could easily knock those electrons off. So we say alpha is very ionizing or it is strongly ionizing. And that is all because it has a large mass so it can knock the electrons off easily. This means if alpha got into your body, it would be very, very dangerous. But is it likely that alpha could get into your body? Well, no. And that is because alpha, as it starts to move in the air, because it's got such a large mass, it collides with the air particles, it loses its energy very, very quickly, and it can't go any further. So we say alpha is not very penetrating. It can't travel very far. And because of that, it can't get through many materials either. It can't penetrate many materials. In fact, alpha can't even get through a very thin sheet of paper. And that means it couldn't get through your skin either because skin is thicker than paper. So, although alpha, if it got into your body, would be very dangerous because it's very ionizing, it's very unlikely it would get into your body because it couldn't penetrate the skin. And those are the properties of alpha. Strongly ionizing, weakly penetrating, and is stopped by paper. Now, imagine you have that uranium that we talked about earlier. Uranium, to become stable, can fire out some alpha. Now, uranium, let's say the version of uranium we're looking at is uranium-238. Now, uranium-238 has a mass number of 238. So when you're writing it, it will be a capital U, because that's the symbol, with 238 at the top, and its atomic number underneath is 92. Now, if uranium fired out alpha, remember, alpha is two protons and two neutrons. So if the mass number of the uranium was 238, but it's firing out something that has a mass of four, what's going to happen to the mass number of that uranium? It will indeed go down by four. If it's firing out something with a mass of four, that means uranium is losing a mass of four. So the uranium's mass number will no longer be 238. It will have become more stable and become 234. Now let's have a look at the atomic number. So the atomic number at the bottom of uranium is 92. And remember, that tells us how many protons are in uranium. So uranium, to begin with, has 92 protons. Now, if that uranium fires out the alpha, which, remember again, is made of two protons and two neutrons, what's going to happen to that atomic number? It will go down by two. Why does it go down by two? because it's firing out two protons. So the uranium originally began with a mass number of 238 and an atomic number of 92. But when it fires out the alpha, its 
um, mass number now becomes 234 and its atomic number becomes 90. And if you can write that in an equation, a bit like in chemistry, then you have wrote a nuclear equation for alpha. The way you would write it would be you would write U, the symbol of uranium, 238 at the top, 92. Then you draw an arrow to show that it's decaying. On the other side of the arrow, you draw the alpha symbol, which looks like a little fish, or you can write HE, because alpha is also a helium nucleus. So the alpha symbol with a 4 at the top of it, because it's got a mass of 4, and 2 as its atomic number, because it's made of 2 protons. And then we do a plus, and then write the uranium again, the new uranium that it's turned into, and that will be 234 at the top and 90 at the bottom. And if you look back at your nuclear equation, you should see on the left-hand side of the arrow, it'll be 238 and 92 on the bottom. And on the right side, if we add the atomic numbers together, 2 from the alpha, 90 from the new uranium, it should make up what we originally had at the start. And that is because everything is conserved. Now, what can alpha in, be used for in life? Well, actually, all of us rely on alpha every day and we don't even know it. Alpha is used in a smoke alarm, not a fire alarm. Fire alarms use thermistors. It is smoke alarms that use alpha. So, how does that actually work? Well, inside the smoke alarm, you have a little alpha source, a little part that's given out alpha radiation. And that alpha radiation moves through the, uh, the smoke alarm through a gap. There's a little gap with air in it. And that alpha will bump into the air particles and ionise them. So that means the air particles in that smoke alarm will have then electrons knocked off. Now what the person who invented this thought, if I can knock those electrons off, these little negative electrons, if I can get those negative electrons to flow in a wire, I can create a circuit. And that's how this works. The alpha ionizes the air, knocks the electrons off the air, the electrons flow to a positive plate and around the circuit, keeping the alarm silent. But when there's a fire, smoke gets into that gap where there's air. That means the alpha cannot get through the smoke and the alpha cannot ionise the air anymore. And if it cannot ionise the air, electrons are not getting knocked off the, um, the air particles. And if the electrons aren't getting knocked off, they cannot flow. And that means no current will flow in that wire, in that circuit anymore. And that triggers the alarm. So, just to summarise that, when there's not a fire and there's not smoke, the alpha can ionise and current does flow, keeping it silent. When there is a fire and there is smoke, the alpha cannot ionise the air. 
the current stops and the alarm sounds. So you can see alpha is really important to keeping us all safe. Thank you for tuning in. That is your alpha podcast. Right, this segment's going to have a look at beta minus decay. So radioactive nuclei can decay and fire out beta minus radiation. Beta minus radiation is actually an electron. So when we say an element is firing out or decaying by beta minus, we mean it's firing out an electron. Because it's an electron, beta minus has a negative charge. Because it's an electron, it has a mass of 0.0005. Now, if beta minus was coming towards me, my body, I could hold some aluminium foil up in front of my body and the beta minus could not get through that aluminium and I would be safe. That aluminium absorbs the beta minus. Now, imagine a element, its nuclei, fires out beta minus. What's going to happen to that element now? Well, when it fires out the beta minus, the electron, that element's atomic number now goes up by one. But its mass stays the same. Its mass stays the same because it's not losing any protons or neutrons. It's only losing an electron. So its mass number stays exactly the same, but its atomic number's gone up by one. If its atomic number has gone up by one, what does that now mean? It means it has an extra proton in its nucleus. How can it now have an extra proton when its mass number stayed the same? Surely its mass number would have gone up by one if it's now got an extra proton. What could have happened inside of that nucleus? Right, what has happened is a neutron has changed into a proton. So the mass number doesn't change because a neutron is just changing into a proton, but its atomic number's now gone up because it has that additional proton. It's just that proton has come from a neutron. So that's what a nuclear equation is. If you had to draw a nuclear equation for beta minus, you would draw the element, so for example, nitrogen 14 and 7. You draw an arrow and show that it's firing out a beta minus. Now the symbol for beta minus can be a B or an E. Now, because it has barely any mass, it's a zero at the top and we have a minus one at the bottom. So that nitrogen 14 at the top, seven at the bottom, we've got an arrow firing out the beta minus with a zero and the minus one. And then we have to balance that. So on the left side of the arrow, you would have 14 at the top as the mass number. If you On the right side of the arrow, you've got zero at the minute because it's beta, which is zero at the top. Your other new element must have 14 at the top as well. But the atomic number, if it was 7 um, on the left and it's firing out beta minus, then that would be an 8. So when nitrogen fires out beta minus, it becomes oxygen. 
So you can see that when an element fires out beta minus, it changes into a new element because its atomic number's gone up by one. Right, let's have a look at beta plus decay. So when a radioactive nuclei fires out beta plus, and by fire out I mean decays, um, what it's actually firing out is a positron. A positron is the antimatter to an electron. Antimatter means it has the same mass but the opposite charge. So beta plus a positron will have the same mass as beta minus an electron. So its mass will be 0.0005. But it has the opposite charge. So beta plus has a positive charge. Now if beta plus was coming towards me and I didn't want it to hit, hit my body, I could hold up some aluminium foil and that would absorb the beta plus stop it from getting towards me. Now when we have a radioactive nuclei that is going to decay by beta plus, what will happen is when it fires that out, its mass number will stay the same but its atomic number will go down. Now its atomic number is going down which means it's got one less proton but if its mass number stayed the same what has happened to that proton? Well, that proton has changed to a neutron. So inside of the nucleus of that radioactive element, as it fires out the positron, a proton changes into a neutron. Now, if nitrogen 14 and 7 was firing out a beta plus particle, that means it would now change into carbon. Because nitrogen has an atomic number of 7, now, if it fires out beta plus, its atomic number goes down by one, so that nitrogen's atomic number will now have gone to six, changing it into a new element, and that element with an atomic number of six is carbon. Let's now take a look at gamma decay. Gamma is a wave, it's not a particle. Because it's a wave, it has no mass and it has no charge. It's just an electromagnetic wave with a high frequency. Now, gamma, because it is a pure energy, a wave, it can travel very, very far in air. We say it is very penetrating. Penetrating means it can travel far and it can travel through objects. So it could travel through the skin very easily because it's very penetrating. Gamma, when it hits your body cells, even though it is ionizing, it can knock electrons off your cells, causing it to mutate and become cancerous. But even though it's ionizing, it's weakly ionizing. It can mutate, it can cause cancer, but it does this weekly. It's not like alpha. Alpha's highly ionizing. It can knock electrons off easily. Whereas gamma doesn't do this as well. So even though it is dangerous, 
because it can penetrate through your skin into the inner parts of your body. When it gets there, it can't ionise as well as alpha would. Now, when an element fires out and decays by gamma, it doesn't change that element's mass number or atomic number because gamma doesn't have mass. It doesn't have protons and neutrons. So, what does happen to that nucleus, that element? It just becomes more stable because it's lost some excess energy. That excess energy is the gamma wave that's being fired off. So when it fires off the gamma, it's taken away some of that excess energy, making that radioactive element more stable and more safe now. Right, let's have a look at detecting radiation. So many, many years ago, scientists didn't really know how dangerous radiation was. It was the likes of Marie Curie and her family who worked with radiation that um, kind of discovered that it was dangerous. Now, radiation, um, to detect it, we could put it near photographic film. So imagine you have this rock that you found and you want to know, is that just a normal rock or is that a radioactive rock? You could put it near some photographic film, leave it for a while and then develop it. And the photographic film, if the rock was radioactive, you would see dark patches and light patches on the photographic film. If it was just a normal rock, nothing would happen to that photographic film. Now, technology's got a lot better since then, and we have invented a piece of kit called a Geiger-Muller counter. A Geiger-Muller counter is a little tube attached to a sensor, and that tube you can point it at objects, and it will tell you how radioactive that object is. And the unit of radioactivity is Becquerel, named after Henry Becquerel. Now, imagine I have a rock, and I want to know how radioactive that rock is. What I can do is firstly point the Geiger-Muller at the air. Now, why would I do that first? I would do that because I want to know the background radiation, the radiation that's in the air, so that when I do point the Geiger-Muller at the rock, I can take away the background radiation levels from the rock so I just know how radioactive the rock is on its own. So I would do that first, that's good practice. What's even better practice is also to take the background radiation after because background radiation can change with time. So if you do it before and after you can get an average before you take it away from the rock. Now this Geiger-Muller um, works because as the radiation goes into the tube it ionizes the air that's in the tube and knocks the electrons off that air and those electrons are then attracted to a positive plate and they go to that positive plate and then flow as current round the circuit and that's how the sensor can measure how much radiation there is because if there's lots of electrons being knocked off 
and then lots of current flowing through the circuit, there must be lots of radiation getting in. If there's not much radiation getting in, not much of the air will be ionised, not many electrons will be knocked off and there won't be much current. So that's how we measure radiation. So we're going to have a look at the atom. The atom, we know, has a nucleus in the very centre, which is tiny. And inside that nucleus, we have positive protons and we have neutral neutrons. Then we have loads of empty space and then electron shells around the outside with electrons on that are negatively charged. That is actually called the Bohr model. Now, we spell that B-O-H-R after the scientist who um, have discovered that it was that structure. So that's the Bohr model. Now, we didn't always know that it was like this. There's been lots of different versions over the years. One of the versions you need to know for your exam is called the Plum Puddin model. Now, Plum Puddin is kind of a hint as to what it looked like. So the plum pudding model of the atom was one large dense sphere, like a kind of like a pudding, and then plum little circles dotted within it. They were the electrons. So we had this big solid circular positive sphere, I should say. So that sphere, the pudding bit, is positive, and then it negative electrons dotted throughout. So in this model, there was no neutrons. Now, how did we go from that plum pudding till the Bohr model? Well, it was a scientist called Rutherford, yeah, I always pronounce that wrong, Rutherford, he did an, exp um, an experiment called the Alpha Scattering Experiment. So what he did was he got some gold foil. Now, we chose gold foil because it was very, very thin. And he got some alpha. Now, alpha, remember, is two protons and two neutrons. So he got that alpha and he fired it at the gold foil. Now, what he noticed was most of the alpha went through the gold foil. And that proved the plum pudding, the plum pudding wrong it proved that actually the atom has loads of empty space because most of that alpha went through. He also noticed just a tiny bit of that alpha actually reflected back. And what did that prove? That proved that that alpha, which is positively charged, was actually reflecting off one part of the atom. And what part was that? It was the nucleus. So that actually proved the positive nucleus wasn't the whole sphere. It was just one little part in the middle. He also noticed some of that alpha went towards the gold file but then deflected in a curved path. So that was showing that some of that alpha went through the empty space but was getting kind of its path changed because it was repelling from the positive nucleus. So this alpha scattering experiment proved that most of the atom was empty space because most of the alpha went through. 
It proved that we had a nucleus which was very small, was in the middle, and it also proved that this nucleus was positively charged because the alpha was deflecting and having a curved path away from that nucleus. So that is what the atom used to be, the plum pudding, what we now know actually is the Bohr model in the alpha scattering experiment that helped us change those ideas. We are going to have a look at background radiation. So what is background radiation? Well, the clue is in the name. It's radiation that is in the background. Basically, radiation that is around you all of the time. So when you're walking to the shops, you're exposed to background radiation. When you sat at home watching Netflix, you're exposed to radiation. Anywhere you go, you will be exposed to radiation. But this background radiation is in very low amounts. And that means it's not dangerous. Okay, it won't uh, mutate your DNA. It won't cause cancer. It is only when you're exposed to higher levels of radiation where the danger is. So where does this radiation come from, this background radiation? Well, if we were looking at um, the sources of background radiation, so where it comes from as a pie chart, half of that pie chart, so 50%, would come from the ground now, under the ground, you have rocks, and some of these will be radioactive. Um, in fact, some of them will have uranium in them. And when it decays, it changes into radon gas that comes out of the ground. So that's your largest source of background radiation, radon gas from the ground. You are also exposed to background radiation from the buildings around you. And this is... Um, even more so for older buildings that are made out of stone. Another source of background radiation is food and drink. If you think about your food, a lot of it grows in the earth, doesn't it? So like lettuce, carrots, all your fruit and veg. Because there's radon gas in the ground, then your food that grows in the ground will also be radioactive. Now, when we buy food from supermarkets... A lot of that is sterilised by gamma as well. So that's why food and drink is a source of background radiation. We also have cosmic rays. Now, in your exam, if you said space rays, you won't get the marks. It has to be cosmic rays. Now, cosmic rays are just waves coming down from space that go through the Earth's atmosphere and reach Earth. And these hit, can hit you obviously they're low in low amounts and um, low doses so it doesn't cause you danger and um, we also are exposed to background radiation um, because of medical um, kind of scans so for example x-rays or cancer treatment that means if you work in a hospital you're more likely to be exposed to that type of background radiation so, um, what job you have will, de will determine how much background radiation you have um, compared to another person. So, we can have an average pie chart of background radiation, but 
every person's individual exposure to background radiation might be slightly different to that average pie chart because of their job or their circumstances. So, for example, Tim Peake, the astronaut, he would have a larger proportion of cosmic mm-hmm. rays. Um, I, who have had a lot of x-rays to, on my teeth and my foot, w- might have a, a bigger proportion of medical So it all depends on who you are, what your job is, what your circumstances is. Now, this background radiation, like I say, isn't dangerous. How can we measure this background radiation? Well, we can use a Geiger-Muller counter. Sometimes it's called a Geiger-Muller tube um, or shortened to GM tube. And all you have to do is point that GM tube in the air and it will measure the level of background radiation for you. You could do it at different places and compare it. So that's what background radiation is. Radiation radiation that's around us all the time, but in very low amounts. Right, let's have a look at half-life. So, radioactive elements or radioactive isotopes decay and when they decay they fire out some alpha beta or gamma and when they do that they become stable and less dangerous now half-life is the time it would take for half of the radioactive isotopes elements you have to decay Basically, that means it's the time it takes for half of those elements you have to fire out their radiation and become stable again. So, elements that have a long half-life, they stay radioactive for a long time, whereas elements that have a short half-life, their radioactivity decreases quite quickly because if they've got a short half-life, they're they're decaying quickly. They're firing out their radiation quickly. Now, we can plot half-life on a graph. And that graph will start off high and then it will slope down because the radioactivity will be decreasing. But it will never touch the x-axis. And that's because radioactivity can never get to zero because it halves and halves and halves and halves and halves until it becomes a very small decimal point, but it will never hit zero. So that means once something's radioactive, it will always be radioactive. It just means that when it does half and half and half, it'll be less radioactive, so it won't cause any danger, but it will still be radioactive. Now we can do calculations with half-life, So let's say you started off with 20 radioactive nuclei and its half-life is four days. What does that actually mean? Well, that means if I'm starting off with 20 radioactive nuclei and its half-life is four days, that means after four days, those 20 will have halved and you'd only have 10. So after four days, it will have gone from 20 to 10. After another four days, what will that 10 have gone to? It'll have gone to five. 
So that means after a total of eight days, the radioactivity will have dropped from 20 to 5. And you will have to do calculations like this on your exam. I have now covered all of the radioactivity content for those students studying combined. So you can end the podcast now and go and listen to another podcast of your choosing. If you study triple, you need to continue listening because you have extra content um, to learn. Right, let's have a look at the uses of alpha, beta and gamma in real life. So we'll start off with alpha. Alpha is actually used in a smoke alarm. So alpha is really important to all houses in the UK because it helps keep us safe. So how does it actually work in this smoke alarm? So inside the smoke alarm, you've got a little box that has the alpha source in it. By alpha source, I mean a element that will fire out alpha. And where it fires out the alpha, is a little gap that has air in it. So the alpha will go through this gap, through the air. At the other side of this gap is a positively charged metal plate, which is attached to wires which go to the alarm. So how does this actually work? On a normal day when there's no fire, there's no smoke. The alpha source fires out the alpha the alpha starts to travel across that gap with the air in. It collides and bumps into the air. And when it does that, it ionises the air. Ionise means knocks electrons off. So that alpha knocks the electrons off the air particles and those negative electrons are attracted to the positive plate. And when they get to that positive plate, they then flow around the circuit to the alarm, keeping the alarm silent. Now, when there is a fire and there's smoke, that smoke goes into the gap, into that gap where the air is. And that blocks the alpha. The alpha cannot get through the smoke. The alpha can't get through the smoke, so it can't ionize the air. And if it can't ionize the air, the electrons are not knocked off the air and they do not get attracted to the positive plate and they cannot flow around the wire to the alarm. So when there's a drop in current and there's no electrons flowing to the alarm, the alarm triggers and goes off and tells us that there's a fire. So that's how alpha is used. But how is beta used? Beta is actually used in factories, in paper mills. So all the paper that you use to draw on and in the photocopiers and in your notebooks, beta um, is actually used to help get that the right thickness. So what happens is paper goes through two big rollers and those rollers can close um, more to make the paper thinner or they can widen to make the paper thicker. But how do they know how to make it thinner or thicker? Well, what they do is they get some beta before the rollers and they fire that beta through the paper. And on the other side of that paper to the beta is a Geiger-Muller tube detecting how much beta is actually getting through. 
if lots of beta gets through that paper, then that means that paper is very thin. It's letting lots of beta through. And that signals to the rollers that it might need to widen a little bit to make the paper uh, thicker. If the beta goes through the paper and the paper actually absorbs a lot of that beta so it can't get through and it is not de detected by the Geiger-Muller tube, then that paper is too thick and the rollers might close a little to make it thinner. So it all depends on how much beta actually gets through the paper. If lots of beta gets through, the paper's thin. If only a little bit of beta goes through, the paper's thick. Right, now on to gamma. Gamma has a few uses. The first one is to detect a break or a leak in water pipes. So imagine underground you've got water flowing through a pipe and these pipes are made of thick concrete. Now gamma can't get through thick concrete so they inject a little bit, so safe amounts of gamma, into the water in the pipes. And that gamma should stay inside that tube because it can't get out of the concrete. But imagine there's a leak, there's a little hole in that pipe. What's the gamma going to do? It's going to go through that hole. It's going to come out. And then you'd be able to detect it on the surface of the earth. And that's exactly what they do. They have Geiger-Muller tubes. If they think there's a leak, they take the Geiger-Muller tube and they um, move it over the land where they think this leak is and where the Geiger-Muller tube picks up gamma, that's where the leak is. They can also use gamma to sterilise medical equipment and to also sterilise food. Sterilise means kill bacteria. So the gamma is fired at the medical equipment or fired at the food and it kills the bacteria on there. Why would you want your food to have bacteria killed? Well, mainly it's for the shops. It's so that they can be more profitable. It's so that the food lasts longer on the shelves before you buy it. You don't want it going mouldy. So they kill it with bacteria. Again, medical equipment, you don't want bacteria on your medical equipment. People will get infections, it wouldn't be safe. So we clean it with gamma. Gamma can also be used in cancer treatment. So if you have um, a tumour in your body, they can fire gamma at it. And they can fire and pinpoint it at that tumour and it can kill those cancerous cells. Now, gamma can also be injected into the body. And in a similar way, that gamma will move through the body to the tumour, again, targeting those cells and killing them. Gamma can also be used in a PET scan. And PET scan's job is to, is to locate the cancer. Where is it in the body? So not only can gamma, uh, can gamma treat cancer, but it can actually locate the cancer as well. So we're going to have a look at PET scans now. Now PET scans can help locate problems in the body. For your exam, we're going to look at how it um, locates where cancer is in the body. So the doctors might already know that somebody has cancer because they've done lots of blood tests, but the PET scan will then allow them to find where exactly this is in the body. And this is how it works. So in a needle, they put a radioactive tracer. Now, 
a radioactive tracer is just um, a radioactive element that fires out radiation. Now, in a PET scan, it is beta plus. Remember, beta plus is a positron. So this element in the needle is firing out beta plus positrons. And that is injected into the person. So the person's been injected with a um, positron emitting tracer. Now, because scientists are clever, they can make that tracer um, make it so that um, it can join onto a cancerous cell. So when it's injected into the arm, it can find its way to the cancer. When it gets to the cancerous uh, cells, those cancerous cells already have electrons in them. So that's because they're made of just normal cells. So they've got electrons in them. And when that tracer gets to those cells with the electrons in and the cancer, the positron from that tracer collides head on with the electrons in the cancer. So that positron and that electron collide head on and they annihilate each other. Now annihilate means um, when they crash into each other, their mass changes into energy and that energy is gamma. So essentially those two particles, the electron and the positron, those two particles, when they collide, they disappear and they change into gamma waves. And these gamma waves, two of them, these come out of the body in opposite directions. And when they come out in opposite directions, this person is put inside a big machine. It's a big round machine that they lie in the middle of. And that machine basically is lots of Geiger Muller counters all the way around the outside of it. And they detect where the gamma is coming from. Now, it won't just be two gamma rays. This will happen thousands of times. So they'll have gamma rays coming off in all different directions. And what they can do is they can follow through science, through computing, follow those gamma rays back and pinpoint exactly where that cancer is. And that is called triangulation. So that's how um, a PET scan works. I'll just run through it simply again. A tracer is injected. That tracer has positrons, beta plus. When it gets to the cancerous cells, the positrons from the tracer collide with the electrons. They annihilate each other. They change into gamma rays. Those gamma rays come out and are detected by the big PET scan, the Geiger-Muller counters all around the outside, and they can triangulate it and find where the cancer is. Now, this tracer that is injected, those tracers have to be made in the hospital, and that is because these um, the tracer has to have quite a short half-life because if you're injecting someone with a radioactive element that has a long half-life, that means that their body's going to be radioactive for a very long time. And we don't want that. It can be dangerous. So the tracer that's injected into the person has to have a short half-life. But if this tracer was made 
um, in Newcastle and had to get down to the James Cook Hospital in Borough, it would have all decayed already. So they have to make the tracer on site so that they can quickly get it into the body before the radioactivity of it goes down because it's got a short half-life. Now let's have a look at nuclear fission. Nuclear fission happens in nuclear power stations. When you hear about a nuclear reactor, that's the reaction that's happening inside of that. It's nuclear fission. So nuclear fission is a nuclear reaction that happens inside a nuclear reactor inside of a power station. So what is fission? So we have uranium. Uranium is classed as our nuclear fuel. So we dig it up from the ground and we put it in the nuclear reactor. And what we do is we take a single neutron and we fire that neutron at the uranium. That uranium absorbs the neutron. The uranium nucleus now becomes a little bit unstable because it's absorbed the neutron and it splits into two. When the uranium absorbs the neutron and splits into two, we call those daughter nuclei. So the uranium is split into two daughter nuclei. And when that happens, two very good things are given off at the same time. Lots of heat is given off, which can then be used to heat up water. The water turns to steam. The steam spins the turbine. The turbine spins the generator. The generator makes electricity. So when the uranium splits into two daughter nuclei, that heat can help us make electricity. But the other thing it gives off is three more neutrons. Now, what's good about that? Well, those three neutrons can then go on to hit more uranium and splitting those three uranium nuclei into two daughter nuclei. And then when they split, each one of them will give off three more neutrons. And that is called a chain reaction. So firing in one single neutron can make that reaction go on and on and on and on, producing so much heat and therefore allowing us to generate so much electricity. Let's now take a look at a nuclear reaction called nuclear fusion. Now, nuclear fusion happens naturally in stars. So our sun is a star and that's what's happening inside of the sun, nuclear fusion. We do not use nuclear fusion for making electricity in power stations. In a nuclear power station, we use fission, not fusion. And we'll come on to why we don't use fusion in a little bit. But let's first have a look at what nuclear fusion actually is. So the word fuse means join. So that's what nuclear fusion is. It's joining nuclei. Now, what nuclei is being joined? It's a hydrogen nuclei. So the nucleus of hydrogen atoms, if we can um, get them together hard enough, they will join together and fuse. Now, why do we need to get them to uh, go together hard enough? That's because a nucleus is positively charged. It's positively charged because it's got protons and neutrons in there. Neutrons are neutral, protons are positive. 
So the nucleus overall has a positive charge. So if you have one positive hydrogen nucleus and another positive hydrogen nucleus trying to join together, they will repel because they are the same charge and like charges repel. So for nuclear fusion to happen, you need to heat up those nuclear um, those nuclei so much that they gain so much kinetic energy that they crash into each other so hard that they overcome the electrostatic repulsion. So let's just recap that. Nuclear fusion is joining together two positive hydrogen nuclei. To do this, we have to heat them up so much that they have lots of kinetic energy to overcome electrostatic repulsion. Now, when they do fuse together to become a larger nuclei, that gives out lots of heat as well. So we have to put heat in to get it going, but heat will be created when they do fuse. Now, why do we not use nuclear fusion to make electricity in a power station if it gives out heat? Surely we can use that heat to heat up water, turn to steam, the steam can spin the turbine, spinning the generator, making electricity. So why don't we use that? Well, it's all because it needs heat to begin with. It needs a lot of heat to heat it up, like we say, to overcome that electric static repulsion. And that's very hard to maintain. If you use nuclear fusion in a power station, your uh, nuclear reactor would have to be so hot to get them to fuse together and that is so hard to maintain and it's expensive but also it's quite inefficient having to heat it up to get heat out so we don't do it. If we could do it at lower temperatures which we called cold fusion we could use it to make electricity but we're not there yet with our technology. Now what might be better for nuclear fusion uh, sorry, why nuclear fusion might be better to make electricity than nuclear fission is that nuclear fusion isn't radioactive. So it doesn't come with the problems of a meltdown and radioactive waste and mutating DNA. So if we could do it at colder temperatures, it would be better than nuclear fission. But we can't. Let's now have a look at nuclear fission and its ability to produce large-scale electricity. So as we've seen in an earlier segment, nuclear fission fires a neutron into the uranium. The uranium splits into two daughter nuclei, producing lots of heat, which can be used to make electricity. And then that releases three more neutrons, which can go on to hit more uranium in a chain reaction. So we use this nuclear fission in nuclear power stations um, and that heat that's given off by the uranium splitting in the two, that heat is used to heat up water. That water then evaporates and turns to steam when it's heated up. The steam moves so fast that it spins a turbine and then that turbine is connected to a generator. Remember, a generator is a coil of wire sitting in between two magnets and when that coil of wire spins inside the magnets, it produces electricity via electromagnetic induction. So the heat from the uranium splitting 
generates electricity. Now, there's lots of pros and cons of nuclear fission to make electricity. Now, the pros are, first of all, it is so efficient. The splitting of uranium creates so much heat. In fact, it makes so much more heat than burning coal does. It, therefore, it makes loads of electricity, and that's why we say it's very efficient. It's very good at its job. Now, that's really good. And the other fact um, is that we're not burning anything. Because it's a nuclear reaction, we're not burning. And therefore, it doesn't produce any CO2, carbon dioxide. And that's good because it doesn't contribute to global warming. It's not going to um, add to climate change. So environmentally, in terms of CO2, that's also really good. Um, and it's very reliable. It doesn't rely on the weather. It doesn't rely on um, kind of day or night. It can be used 24-7. It's just a constant generation of electricity. So it's efficient, reliable and doesn't produce CO2. But there's problems. First of all, uranium is found in rocks. And eventually that uranium will run out. So nuclear power in uranium is non-renewable. We won't always have it. Secondly, the big one is nuclear waste. The uranium that splits into two daughter nuclei, those two daughter nuclei are our waste. And that waste, those daughter nuclei, are radioactive. And you know that radiation can mutate DNA cause cancer. So they can't just um, dispose of that radiation anywhere. We've got to um, deal with it effectively to make it safe. So what they can do with that, um, with those daughter nuclei, the leftover waste, the radiation, is they put it in special canisters, um, like concrete, glass, lead, and then they bury it in special landfill sites. Now that's a problem because if the canisters leak, it can get into the food chains, seep into the soil, goes into the plants. The animals that eat those plants will get radiation in them, which is quite dangerous. They can also take those canisters and put them at the bottom of the ocean. Again, if they rust, if it leaks, it gets into the water. Again, it'll get into the food chain um, that's in the water. They can also fire them into space. But that means there is always the risk of it coming back down as they're trying to fire it out, and that would be dangerous too. So the fact that this, there is this nuclear waste is a major disadvantage. Not only that, that those landfill sites that we're talking about aren't next to the nuclear power station. So for example, there's a nuclear power station in Hartlepool, but the waste isn't buried in Hartlepool. It gets transported across the country. And that poses lots of dangers if the truck that's carrying it crashes, if terrorists intercept it. So there's loads of problems around this waste. And then the other major disadvantage is maybe something like Chernobyl could happen again, where the nuclear reactor goes into a meltdown. And why might it go into a meltdown? Because of this chain reaction. So the chain reaction, the uh, neutrons continuously being made 
and being fired into more uranium, that can get out of control. So much heat can be created, it would start to go into a meltdown. And if it goes into a meltdown, a bit like Chernobyl, the nuclear waste can get into the atmosphere um, and it can cause a lot of damage. So they have to have safety features in the nuclear power station. So the first nu um, safety feature in the nuclear power station is a control rod. A control rod is in the nuclear reactor and the job of the control rod is to absorb excess neutrons. You can drop these control rods in at different heights to absorb more or less neutrons depending on how much electricity you want produced. But that's good because if you want to stop the chain reaction completely, you can drop the control rods in fully and it will, it will absorb all of those neutrons and therefore stopping the chain reaction. The second safety feature is a moderator. Now the moderator is usually made of graphite and they are to slow the neutrons down. And when that slows the neutrons down, it allows us to manage that nuclear reaction more effectively. The third safety feature is a coolant. So a cold liquid is pumped into the nuclear reactor and any excess heat will heat that liquid up and then the hot liquid's taken away and new cool liquid's pumped in. It's basically to carry away some of the excess heat to keep the nu nuclear reactor cool. So you can see that even though um, nuclear power fission of uranium can make a lot of electricity, it also has its risks. So why do we still use nuclear power if it has all of these risks? Well, actually, these risks are quite low. So we say that the benefits outweigh the costs. 